Chapter Nine of In a North Country Village by M. E. Francis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Little Paupers. All the chubby, rosy little people who may be seen flocking to Thornley School are not natives of the place. There is a floating population of boarders out, workhouse children billeted here and there in the village by the union. They are principally girls for the thrifty Thornley matrons value the hand's turn they can get out of them occasionally quite as much as the bitter money that they receive for their keep. But now and then a farmer or a cowkeeper finds a pauper lad come in useful for driving a milk cart, or cleaning shippens, or performing odd jobs that it seems a pity to pay out wage for. It is only fair to say that as a rule these children are exceedingly well fed and well treated but nevertheless there is and always will be a certain distinction made between little isaac and little ishmael thus while the child of the house is free to play by the roadside after school the workhouse child must come in and scrub a floor or clean the pots and pans here and there their meals though the same in quality as those of the rest of the family are partaken of at a separate table and at christmas time when there's dancing and tea-drinking and merry-making all over the place the little boarders out are left behind. The canon usually gave a consolation party for the pauperines, as he called them. There was joy and triumph. The proud sisters had perforce to stay at home, and the little Cinderellas went to the party. And the canon poured out their tea, and stuffed them with cakes, and told them stories and played the piano for them to dance to. Altogether there was no end to the rapture and the glory. Jack Davis was a workhouse boy who had been brought up at Thornley from the age of two. His master, Farmer Morris, calculating that he would be big enough to work by the time his companion pauper, a lad of eight, was too old to be paid for by the union. Some people laughed at this foresight of Farmer Morris's and reckoned the brat would do more damage than his keep was worth long before any work could be got out of him. But as time passed, the village folk changed their tune for not only did his master find him useful but nearly every man woman and child in the place contrived to get a hand's turn out of jack now the little round-faced fair-haired lad would be seen driving in the cows for mr waring now running to the shop for granny gibson or to the pump with polly birch's kettle or to some distant field with joe rutherford's baggin and now toiling along the dusty road which led to upton bent almost double under the weight of an overflowing clothes-basket while its rightful owner sauntered leisurely in the rear gossiping with a friend the women rewarded him with a there's a good lad the men with an inarticulate grunt at the end of his journey and little jack would look up brightly and wipe his brow with his jacket sleeve and start off at a brisk pace to see if he was wanted anywhere else there never was such a good-natured good-humoured willing urchin as jack davis everybody liked him and everybody made a drudge of him the little beast of burden as the canon called him was so ubiquitous so obliging so prompt so blithe that it was almost impossible to avoid taking advantage of his anxiety to make himself useful who's to fetch that parcel of books from the station the priest would ask perhaps oh jack davis said he would go after school the mistress would reply as a matter of course did you jack I thought my housekeeper was sending you in the opposite direction for some eggs. Then Jack would stand up, extending his little red paw as a sign that he wished to speak, 
his blue eyes jumping out of his head with eagerness. Please, Canon, I can easy do both afore milking time. Milking time, echoed the Canon with his kindly laugh. I'd forgotten Mr. Waring's cows. Poor little beast of burden. He knew there was nothing which offended Jack more deeply than to refuse his proffered services, or indeed to neglect to ask for them when required. Once Jack had cried for a week because the canon had omitted to tell him he was setting out on a journey at five o'clock in the morning, and the child was too late to carry his bag to the station. On the next occasion, Jack made sure of him by sitting on the doorstep of the presbytery all night. With this general amiability, Jack was so diligent at his lessons, so punctual in coming to church, so pious, so honest, so painstaking, that sometimes the canon would shake his head over his excessive goodness. It can't last, he would say. I know it can't last. He will either die or take to courting. But years went by, and the union left off paying for Jack, and Mr. Morris began to pay him the very smallest sum he could decently offer him. And Jack went on working for him, and everybody else, and grew a little taller, and a good deal broader, and by and by, a sort of flaxen fluff appeared on his upper lip. He would very soon be a man, and yet so far the alternatives dreaded by the canon seemed equally remote. One Sunday afternoon, however, the canon happened to be strolling along a lane in the neighbourhood of the village, when he came suddenly face to face with Jack, and a young lady, a very smart young lady, though up to the last two years she had been a pauperine. She was now a servant at one of the farms at Upton, and in the receipt of sufficiently high wages to enable her to wear a locket with a blue stone in it, and a hat with a pink feather. I'm not quite sure if she was leaning on Jack's arm, or Jack on hers, but arm in arm they were, and apparently on most affectionate terms. The canon stood stock still in the middle of the path, and gave them one of his terrible looks. "'John Davis,' said the canon, "'and Margaret Lunt.' what is the meaning of this john davis stood motionless his eyes goggling and his face turning from red to purple and from purple to white margaret lunt sobbed and choked and coughed and then putting her finger and thumb in her mouth took out a large bull's eye please canon he's my young man she observed diffidently indeed said the canon and then he turned to jack but found it difficult to preserve his gravity as he described the outline of what was evidently a companion bull's-eye, clearly defined in the youth's cheek. Steadying his voice, he resumed, with becoming severity, "'John, I am surprised at you. How often have you heard me speak about the folly, and more than folly, of such behaviour as this? Do you not know that I always set my face against this, this senseless love-making which can never come to anything?' please canon returned jack speaking somewhat inarticulately partly on account of emotion and partly on account of the bull's-eye please canon we was coming to see you coming to me what for jack nudged maggie who as a rule was more glib with her tongue than he but on this occasion she was so much overwhelmed with bashfulness that she could only hang her head till the canon observed that the pink feather was fastened at the back of her hat with a very large and crooked brass pin "'Well?' he asked after a pause. Maggie nudged Jack, and murmured indignantly, "'Go on, can't ye?' "'Cannon,' said Jack, 
I take it rather hard that you should sauce us, for what's no but reet. Maggie and me's made up our minds to get wed, and we was just coming to ax ye if ye'd put us up next Sunday. The bands, you know. Here the would-be bridegroom came to a sudden stop, owing to the bull's-eye unexpectedly tumbling out of his mouth. He looked down at it as it rolled along the path, and then put his foot on it, much as if it had been a beetle. Bands, said the canon, struggling with a violent inclination to laugh. And bull's-eyes? How old are you, Jack? Very near nineteen, responded Jack, with somewhat sulky dignity. And as for their bull's-eyes, I don't max so much count of them. It's Maggie as was that set on my trying one. The woman gave me, and I did eat, muttered the canon, and he laughed outright. The whole story. So you are fond of bull's-eyes, Maggie? There, don't be afraid. Hold up your head. I don't at all find fault with the bull's-eyes. I only object to the bands. How old are you, Maggie? I'm turned sixteen, whispered Maggie faintly. Oh, children, children, said the canon, laughing again. But presently, composing himself, he sat down on the bank that edged the road, and looked at Jack, who somehow did not seem so crestfallen as he expected. What are you going to marry on? he asked more seriously. How do you propose to live? You both only earn a few shillings a week besides your board, and when Maggie gives up her place, she will of course lose that. And even if Mr. Morris continues to employ you, which I doubt, I'm quite sure he will not give you wages enough to keep a wife on. No, no, it's absurd for either of you to think of marriage for several years to come, and meanwhile there must be no talk of keeping company. Understand that. Canon, said Jack, much wounded but still dignified, it's just because I do understand that I were coming to ye. I'd never have gone for to say a word to Maggie without I had it all settled. Her and me's going to live in town when we wed. I've the promise of a job down at the docks, and good wage they give too, and I've seen a room as'll just suit us, and we's do very well. Why should we wait? She's no one, and I've no one. If ye won't do the job yourself, we can get married at Upton. But I never thought, added Jack, with tears starting to his eyes, I never thought as it'd be any one but our own canon as had... He paused, too much moved to continue. The canon was a little overcome himself, for he was very fond of Jack, and besides being sorry to part with him, he could not but see that this was a foolish business, and would probably end in misery. The mere thought of these youthful simpletons exchanging their healthy, happy country home for a room in some slum near the docks was in itself a source of anxiety and then marriage before the bridegroom was nineteen beginning life on the promise of a job it was deplorable nevertheless in spite of everything he could urge jack stuck to his point maggie and he would take their chance but get wed they would and if canon wouldn't shout them next sunday they would go to upton you are a couple of geese said the canon getting off the bank at last but if any one is to marry you it shall be myself shouted they accordingly were on the appointed day to the intense amusement of thornley which was unanimous in voting them a pair of noddies as neither of them had any relations that they knew of nobody gave them anything except good advice of that they received enough and to spare 
though the sum and substance of it all might have been condensed into one famous word addressed by mr punch to people in their situation but they would and they did though presently thornley growing quite irate at their pig-headedness said some severe things and uttered gloomy prophecies farmer waring going so far as to tell jack that he needn't come looking for help there when he and his wife found themselves beggars i'll clem first cried jack with an angry flash in his eyes it was the only time he lost his temper up to this he had received advice remonstrances and reprimands with imperturbable good humour but this remark cut him a bit as he subsequently observed all the same on his wedding morning he drove up farmer waring's cows for him as usual and filled granny gibson's kettle and fed mrs birch's pigs and then he changed his coat and went to fetch maggie to church maggie had expended her last remaining shillings on a lace collar and a pair of flesh-coloured silk gloves which had to be peeled off with great difficulty when the ceremony was about to begin jack wore his rather threadbare sunday clothes he could not afford to make any difference in his attire for though he had been saving for several months before he spoke to maggie his little capital was sadly diminished by the time he had purchased the ring and paid for the hire of a room and the few sticks of furniture that were absolutely indispensable nevertheless as they stood at the altar rails together the canon thought he had never seen so radiant a pair and when they finally walked off arm in arm he smiled and sighed together poor little beast of burden he said i wonder if he realises the weight of the load he's taken on his shoulders this time but after all they have youth and hope and health and love god bless my little paupers he watched them as they descended the church steps and walked down the path maggie's head nodding and the skirt of her dress giving a little kick up at the back at every step there was no giggling crowd waiting at the lich gate to deluge them with rice nobody had time or inclination to assist at this insignificant wedding no carriage was in attendance to convey them home according to thornley custom even if you only live fifty yards away from the church it's the proper thing to drive to and from your wedding no substantial meal was spread for them no jocular guests gathered round no health drinking anticipated jack had some slices of bread and meat in a handkerchief and maggie had gooseberries in a paper bag and thus provided they set off to spend their holiday in the fields jack was to start work on the morrow and this was to be their last day in the country so they were determined to make the most of it it was beautiful summer weather larks were singing overhead and butterflies flashing through the air and there were cuckoo flowers in the grass and marsh marigolds and water creases and fat stem blue forget-me-nots in the ditches once a big bumblebee came booming and blundering past in such a hurry that he nearly flew into maggie's face and she was frightened and clung to jack with a little scream what's to do mrs davis said jack which sally they both considered so exquisitely funny that they stood still and laughed till the cows and horses grazing in distant fields raised astonished heads and looked at them then they walked on sedately maggie resting her left hand on jack's arm and smiling complacently down at it every now and then she had not resumed her gloves partly because she was hot and partly because she was economical but chiefly because she could not see her wedding ring clearly through the silk 
after threading many fields and pausing to rest themselves on a gate they reached a range of sand hills bordering the seashore and came to a standstill beneath the steepest mound i mind said maggie with a half sigh of sentimental reminiscence how i used to roll down this hill when i was a child would you like a roll now said jack i'll shove you off and th top eh lad how can ye talk such nonsense replied maggie bridling for shame of ye thereupon jack composing his features explained that he had only been joking and they climbed the hill with much sliding and laughing and screaming from the bride whose arm was nearly dislocated by her husband in his strenuous efforts to haul her along finally they reached the top and sat down panting and laughing still and when they recovered their breath they ate their dinner jack called maggie missus throughout this meal and maggie assumed pretty little airs of matronly importance but presently they got tired of being dignified and began to try who could throw the gooseberry skins farthest down the hill by and by a big steamer was visible on the distant horizon and jack explained all about it to maggie then a white-sailed schooner hove into sight which he also pointed out calling it a brig by the by in the far far distance a forest of masts were defined against the clear sky clear save for the light cloud of smoke which hung over them and the adjacent town yon's the docks cried jack nudging maggie and nigh to them's home lass home echoed maggie gazing at the mass and the smoke and the distant roofs and chimneys with eager ignorant eyes there was a delicious little breeze lurking somewhere near the top of that sand-hill which went rustling through the star-grass every now and then bending it into blue-green ripples refreshing to look at but the sun was hot enough to please jack and maggie and there was a little patch of wild thyme just beneath their feet which sent up new fragrance every time they pressed it the tide was in and gulls were floating on the edge of the water sometimes rising high above their heads with shrill screams and flappings of silver wings so the day wore away and at last the great pageant of sunset was enacted for these happy pauper children as they sat poised in mid-air upon their glittering throne of sand and as they watched the golden sky and the golden waters they felt themselves rich enough and when the sun disappeared and all the landscape was bathed in a mellow afterglow they went hand in hand together down the hill and into the wide world End of chapter nine